Hey guys, welcome to the Outpour in Orlando's YouTube channel, where we exist to help people grow in Christ, share the gospel, and serve the community. Thank you so much for tuning in. We hope that you are blessed by today's message. Hey, if you're ever in the Orlando area, consider joining us for service. We would love to serve and worship with you. We hope to see you soon. Two short verses for us today. Exodus 20, verses 2 and 3. Uh, God the Father says this. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. I feel like my brother Trey already kind of preached the whole sermon for me this morning, so we could just go back and sing that song. Or Pastor John prayed for me just in there, and he preached the whole sermon as well. So um, I appreciate you guys. But with that idea of, uh, of thirsting after something, the, as the deer pants for streams of living water, so my soul longs after you, O oh God. Or the line in that song, uh, the child longs to, is it dance with the father? Walk with the father? What's he doing with the father? I don't know, father stuff, right? Yeah. Don't we want that? Don't you actually want to feel full? Don't you actually want to feel like you're loved? Don't you actually want to feel like someone desires you? I know that you do because we do it in all sorts of places in life, but what I want to communicate this morning is that God above all else wants that for you. And so we're going to read from the Ten Commandments, and that might feel counterintuitive because <laughs> it's a bunch of rules. And how many of us like rules? No one? Come on! Not a single person likes rules in here? Man, I think you're right, though. We look at rules and we say, those are stealing, right? They're stealing my liberty. They're stealing my freedom. They're keeping me from doing the things I want to do. And so what I want to talk to you about today is helping us understand the law in relation to God's love for us. And how important it is. Because if we can see it clearly in that way, it transforms our understanding of who God is and how he, wants to, uh, uh, how he wants to be with us, how he wants to serve us, how he wants to care for us. All that matters so much. So we go back to Exodus 20. And Pastor John was gracious to me because I have to preach next week at my church. <laughs> and I was like, I don't know if I can handle two sermons in two weeks. I've never done that. I'm an associate pastor. I'm not, I'm not a big dog, right? I'm not, I'm not preaching 45 weeks a year. Uh, I, I, I preach like four times a year. And so I get like four months to work on it. And then I end up preaching like an hour and a half or whatever. And they're like, chill out, man. Like, go sit down. It's too much. I only get 26 minutes at my church, that's true. Uh, and so that feels real short. It feels like a commercial, basically. But Pastor John said I can have a couple hours if I want. So that's going to be a fun time, yeah? We're preaching through the Ten Commandments this summer, and I had the privilege of, of getting the first commandment. I think that matters a lot. So even though you're not going to get the other nine um, from me, you can go watch our stuff online later if you want. But, uh, but the first commandment, there's a lot of theologians have said if you break the first uh, sorry, you never break any of the other ones if it, uh, without breaking the first one. You never break any of the other commandments in terms of relating to God or relating to neighbor unless you've already broke this commandment, have no other gods before me. So I think you'll, it'll be helpful for you today. Even if you don't finish the series, that's all right. I think this will actually be really helpful for you today um, because what we're going to look at first, this, this very first thing, is um, it's an idea that, that we need to figure out where the law fits, right? Right? 
We need to figure out where it fits in our relationship with the living God. And so what we're going to do, just real quickly, we're going to look back at this verse. This is, people call this the preamble to the, the Ten Commandments. It says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt and out of the land of slavery. So Exodus 20 is after 19 chapters of a story. And it's the story of the people of God. And they've gone from a place of slavery and bondage to the Egyptians. And they've been brought out of that place in an incredible way. Y'all know this story? Show me a hand if you know this story. Yeah, yeah, It's a pretty incredible, I don't need to recap. You guys, most of you guys know the story. It's unbelievable the way that they're brought out of this one place and brought into a new place by the hand of the living God. So he takes these first two, uh, or really this, this, this sentence right here, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And he says, this is all of the first 19 chapters combined. This is what just happened. Right? And then after he says, remember how I redeemed you. Remember the wonder of the plagues that came against all the gods of Egypt. Remember how I said, I am the one true living God. I'm better than all the other ones that you've been surrounded by and worshiped for for so long in Egypt. I am better than them. And guess what? I can save and redeem you. And he did. He brought them out of the land of Egypt. He helped them cross through the Red Sea. That story's insane, y'all. It's insane that water would part and they would walk on dry land. And then as soon as their enemies came into that same space, crushed them. That's insane. And that's the power of the living God to say, I can come against whatever enemy. You have a power of this world that seems powerful. I'm better than that. I'm better than that. And then he brings them into the desert where they do some wandering. What happens to the people there? I call them complainopotamuses, right? They're, they're like large hippos who just complain. And they complain and they complain. And they even say things like, it was better in Egypt. And so God says, you're my people now. You don't live like you used to live. Egypt's not your home. It wasn't good to you. Stop lying to yourself. It's like that person who wants to go back to their ex all the time. The one that treated them bad. You're like, what are you doing? They were awful. I don't know. <laughs> they bought my dinner every once in a while. It was kind of nice. Half the time I paid, half the time they paid. It was kind of actually evened out now that I think about it. It doesn't make a lot of sense. So he says, you're my people, and this is how my people live. The law is offered after redemption, not before. You don't get the Ten Commandments when you're still enslaved and say, hey, live up to this first, and then I'll bring you out. Show us how good you can be, and if you can prove that you're worth being my people, then I'll bring you out. You don't get that. What you get is full-blown redemption, the whole of it. Everything saved. The people removed from this space and offered a new life. And then he says, and guess what? Let's not use the word law. Let's use how to care for each other. <laughs> here's 10 ways to care for each other. Here's 10, here's four ways to relate to me as your God. And here's six ways to love and serve your neighbor. Right? Isn't that how Jesus says it in the New Testament? What, teacher, what is the greatest commandment? And there's hundreds <laughs> that Jesus could pick from. And they're trying to catch him. And he says this, the greatest commandment is that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second's just like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All of the law of the prophets hang on these two commandments. 
So we look at law and say, it's limiting my freedom. It's taking things away from me. And God's saying, here's the law, a gift to know how to actually live. You've actually never had life. You've never experienced it. You've never known the fullness of what I've made you for. If I'm your creator, then wouldn't I know what you were made for? Wouldn't I know what could fill you up? Wouldn't I know what could give you purpose and meaning and all these things that you've been dying for your whole life? Wouldn't I know? That's like telling an inventor of something. They're like, well, I don't think it's supposed to do that. I don't think that that bottle opener is supposed to open bottles, right? That's probably not what you... I'm the inventor. I don't care what you say. I made it. This is what it's for. God's saying, I'm your inventor. I created you from nothing. I am your God. You are my people. This is what you're for. Love of God and love of people. That's it. Grace comes before. Law comes after to teach us the way to live. David used to talk about it like this in the Psalms. Remember King David? He had some run-ins with the law, yeah? His own laws, all sorts of stuff. Not the easiest life, I'd say. Actually, had a great easy life. He just (laughs) kept doing dumb stuff. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are wise. I tried to quote it. I can't, sorry. I memorized it in uh, elementary school, but it's gone now. Hold on. Give me a second. Statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them righteous. Listen to this. How many times have you heard, if you think about the Ten Commandments, how many times have you felt it like this? They are more precious than gold. Much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey. Honey from a comb. By them your servant is warned, and keeping them there is great reward. Is that how you all see the law? Is that how we look at the way God has asked us to live? It's pure, trustworthy, firm, something that we ought to love. If we begin by trusting that God really is our creator and our redeemer, that he really has your best interest in mind, it transforms the way we see the law. It actually endears us to it, right? How many of you as kids wanted to play in the street, which is where cars go? Anyone? Yeah, I was always angry at my parents. There's so much room out there for activities. Mom and dad, what are you doing? The driveway slanted and annoying. All I want is to play in this massive street. And they're like, you can't play in the street. That's a rule. Well, you're taking my freedom. And as a five-year-old, I know what I'm doing. Let me play in the street. And now I just had my first son two months ago. And guaranteed when he asked me to play in the street, what am I going to say? No, because I hate him? Because I love him so much that allowing him flippantly to engage in something that could be destructive to his being is beyond anything I could ever fathom. So if the Lord says to you, my child, I know that you think you're smart. And guess what? You are in a lot of ways. You're made in my image. Proud of that. And yet, there are things that you don't know about what's going to be destructive, not only to your body, but to your soul. And don't do this. 
don't do this. I don't offer this out of hatred, not out of you need to measure up my son or daughter. I offer it out of deep love. Transforms our understanding of who God is and what he is trying to do. So instead of using it as a measuring stick, instead of inserting the law prior to redemption, we recognize that God in his grace is rich in mercy, right? He draws near to us and offers us redemption. He offers us salvation. And then he says, and my son and daughter, here's my gift to you. It's sweet, it's firm, it's trustworthy. You can latch onto it. Why? Because you know it's out of the deep affection that I have for you. So that's what gets us to the first commandment. Not a God who's trying to say, I want to see if you measure up, but a God who says, I want to see you flourish. I want to see you grow. I want to see you live the life that you want, a full life of joy and completeness. But the problem is it's not going to happen the way you thought. And so I need to help you reorient your mind to the way that it's going to happen. So the law fits after God's grace. So the first part of the first command, um, it's, it's, it's kind of two parts. You, have, you shall have no other gods before me, right? You shall have no other gods before me. So we're going to start with, you shall have no other gods. Um, there's two parts to this redemptive narrative. The first part is being pulled out of the slavery, right? Pulled out of the bondage. They had to be ripped from that. But the other bondage that they needed to be ripped from was the heart bondage. That was like, hey, we've done this life this way the whole, always. <laughs> this is all we've ever known. We've, all we've ever known has been surrounded by other gods. All we've ever known is a polytheistic way of seeing the world, that you have a God for everything, a God for the sun, a God for fertility, a God for the crops. I, I, we've got a God for everything in Egypt. And so how does God refute that? He comes in, he says, these 10 plagues pair up with 10 Egyptian gods. And again, I'm better. There's just one. It's me. Okay? So now I have got to rip, I've already ripped your bodies out of the bondage. Now I've got to rip your heart out of it. Because you are stuck in this understanding and you shall have no other gods. This is what this looks like in my life. So they had weird gods. I just named them all, right? Crops and the sun and all sorts of stuff. We don't have gods, do we? Not like that. <laughs> we don't build cows anymore and bow down to them or, you know, wooden sticks that we necessarily, you know, bow down to them in our backyard. Maybe some of you do. I don't know. That'd be very honest of you. That, that kind of worship would be extremely honest. We're dishonest with our worship, right? We don't call it that. We're just like, oh, I've just got stuff. <laughs> I've just got, like, some things in my life. Okay, 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 tell me more. Like, what, what, what kind of things you got? Well, I just got, I, I have like a job that demands 70 hours a week. Okay, um, that's not necessarily the wrong thing. Definitely not. Uh, tell me more about why you work so much. Are you not doing okay? Do you, is it financial? Do you need more? No, I'm doing okay. I'm doing all right. I, I'm making enough. Oh, okay. Um, are you, what, help me understand, why, why are you working so much? Well, I, I live this life, see, because I've got a vision of the good life that says if I put in 70 hours a week and I please my boss and everyone else and I take every single phone call and I make space and time for the people that'll help me towards upward mobility, and if I do all of these things over and over and over and over and give my life to that, then I'll eventually get where I want to go. I'll eventually get to a freedom and a comfort and a lifestyle and a belonging that'll finally make me happy. 
oh, maybe you don't have gods. <laughs> or maybe you do. You know what? Success isn't really my thing. That's not what I need. What I really need is to feel loved by someone else. That's what I need. I need a significant other who will care for me, do all those things for me. And so um, the only way to do that is to curate my Instagram, just so, uh, and to... And there's this makeup line that is, I mean, it's expensive, but worth it, right? And also, I got to have that gym membership because no one's going to show up and want the dad bod, right? Like, and so I pour in, and I pour in, and I pour in, and I pour in. And every morning when I wake up in the mirror, I look at myself and I say, ah, it's close. Not quite what I'm hoping for. And I bet if I could get it to what I'm hoping for, then someone else would say, that's what I'm hoping for, too. We pour in, and we pour in, and we pour in, because that relationship will make us happy. We'll finally feel like we belong. How about this? Uh, my wife gave birth to my son two months ago. <laughs> I want to talk about gods. Here we go. It's a little, it's a little god running around my house now. Yeah. No, it's not him that's the God. Uh, I've been deeply saddened by my own uh, need for the life I lived before he was here. I curated my life and called it like a healthy rhythm. I said, I rest a lot. I play enough. Got friendships. I don't work too much. All these things. And then everything changed when little Jack-Jack was born. I slept enough. Did I mention that? <laughs> everything changed because when he came into the world, he began to demand something different of me and my wife. And these things that I thought I could part with pretty easily, the play and the fun, the extra time with friends, random trips to the mall just because I felt like it, wanted to buy a cool new pair of Nikes, like, now, all of a sudden, that stuff costs way more. Not money. But my wife is home with him all day long. And I work, and I ought to go home and be with him. You know what I want to do? Just go somewhere. What's my God? Freedom. Control. My space, my time. All of it was mine. It's not his fault. Absolutely not his fault, but he has revealed something to me that I thought I was living a life that had very few gods, at least that were visible. And now all of a sudden I'm realizing that this simplicity or the nuance or the complexity actually of all these little things had crept in and attached themselves to my heart. And you know how I figured out that these were gods? Because what's come out of me in relation to it is anger. Not at my son, not at my wife, not just... <clears throat> Why'd you take that from me? Friends, that's a great way to understand what a God might be in your life. Just take a, take a note of uh, what's made you the most angry over the last month. But then you gotta, you gotta trace it back, right? You can't be like, well, it was my brother. <laughs> and it's like, well, he's just a jerk. <laughs> you, gotta, you gotta be more discerning than that. Because there's something inside of you that's welling up whenever that's going on. I love this quote from Sinclair Ferguson. He says this, 
Anything can be deified. The smallest coin brought near enough to the eye can obscure the entire universe from sight. Anything that tends to obscure our clear vision of God must come under a ban. You ever do that as a kid, You're looking at other people with one eye closed, and you, you see them from afar, and you hold your fingers like that far apart, and you act like you're pinching them? You're like, gotcha. Did no one ever do that? Oh, what a terrible metaphor. Whiff, right? But think about that. The smallest object in your whole life can be held so close to your eye that you can no longer see anything else. Is that not idolatry? Is that not the small gods? We can make a god out of anything. Sports teams? Who likes sports teams? I've been idolizing those since I was like four. I was indoctrinated into it. It's like a church. Go Gators. <laughs> Anyone? Oh, I might get tossed out. <laughs> if of all the things that I could have said that I thought would have got me in trouble, that was not on the list. How about your kids' sports teams? That can become an idol. You ever watch parents go nutso on that stuff? It is super interesting. And I guarantee I'll be battling that same urge. Your kids themselves can become idols. Your looks, your beauty, your desirability. We already talked through that a little bit. Your spouse, your collections, your books, your coins, your hats, your shoes, your work, your role, your seat, your power, your authority, your title, your food, things that just bring comfort, joy, your way, your control, being right. For me, often it's comfort Comfort and contentment in the little things in life quickly become idols. Uh, but notice how I kind of shared those things. It's, there's, a, there's a God underneath these gods. And I bet if I gave you enough time to think about it, you could probably guess. Uh, it's actually not those objects themselves. Every good and perfect gift is from above. I think the Lord offers us good gifts. I think a good definition for idolatry is turning a good thing into an ultimate thing. Turning a good thing into an ultimate thing. And the person that keeps doing that over and over in my life is me. You're the God under there. From the very beginning, that was the question of Adam and Eve. You really think that God has your best intentions in mind? You really think and he knows what's best for you. And Eve said, I think I might know better. The simple truth is we are serving ourselves with all of these things. And the divorce that needs to happen is of a love for self. That's where Christianity differs from all other religions. Every other one says, earn this, measure up, you'll attain, you'll get, you grow, you do this, blah, 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 right? Christianity says, die to yourself. You have to literally die to yourself if you want to engage in this sort of life. That is the, that's the movement of Christianity, is saying, all I've loved my whole life, even if I made it look like I was loving other people, I was loving me. You guys know those people? They are painfully helpful, right? They are constantly doing everything you could possibly need. And you're like, is this sincere? Or do you feel like you're serving you through me? See, I'm not one of those people. That's why I, I make it very explicit when I'm serving me, 
right? But it's so insidious that you can even take that good thing, service and love of other people, and you can flip it around and say, that's how I find joy in my life. That's how I get mine. That's what I need. I need you to need me. I need it so bad. I do it as a pastor. I need you to need my words right here from Sunday morning. I can turn the easiest thing, the simplest thing, the smallest thing, I can bring it so close to my eye that it becomes an idol in my heart. And so Jesus says, this is what it looks like to be a Christian. You have got to stop loving you. And we feel like that is, again, an, an encroachment on our freedom. It's as terrifying as literally saying, I will go ahead and die. It's terrifying because if you think for just a second that you can let go of your self-love, then who's going to care for you? Because what the world has taught you is only you will. What the world has taught you is you've got to look out for yourself. You've got to look out for number one. No one's going to throw you into the next title or seat in a company. No one's going to just toss you love and affirmation and encouragement. No one's just going to give it to you. You've got to earn it. And if you are not on it all the time, figuring out how you're going to get that thing, then you will be forgotten. And you will slip into utter despair. There's nothing for you here. And Jesus comes along and says, that, friends, that's the burden you've carried your whole life. Your own self-love. The, the, the wake, think about how you perceive the world. It's everything in light of who you are. It's like the whole world's a big mirror. And you're look, I'm looking at Pastor John to actually see what he thinks of me, not because I care about Pastor John. I'm like, oh, what's my reflection in you, right? Oh, what's my reflection in this work over here? What does that make me look like? What's my reflection in my car or my shoes or my personality? What's my reflection in all these things? I see the whole world as this mirror that's showing me me. And it's a burden of insecurity, right? You ever been to the, one of those fairs that has the crazy mirrors? And you walk in and the one mirror makes you like this big at the waist and you're like, whoa, yes. And then you walk to the other one and you're like this tall and like that wide and you're like, what just happened? That's our lives. We're walking into a mirror room that is nuts. It is nuts, and it's telling us all the things about us, both good and bad, and the good puffs us up, and the bad destroys us. It's not trustworthy. You can't stand on that foundation. You cannot. Henry Nouwen, we were just talking about Henry Nouwen in the back. He talked about the way that a little encouragement would puff him up, and a little critique would destroy him and tear him down. And this is what he said of his heart. He said, I feel like a small boat on a restless ocean being tossed back and forth every second of my life. You feel that way? You feel that insecurity sometimes? Maybe you don't show it. You all are put together. I see you. Good-looking people. But it's true of your heart, isn't it? That there is that insecurity that is so hard to divorce ourselves from because we are so in love with us and Jesus says, this is what I need you to do. I need you to have no other gods, including you. I need you to have none other but me. And just like the law that feels like an affront on our person at the beginning, it feels like it's going to beat us to death. When we see it in light of God's grace, it actually transforms our understanding. And what we see in that space is that, as C.S. Lewis has said, it's blessed humility, delightful humility. How many of y'all have ever heard uh, being humbled as a fun thing? Anyone? 
what happens when you get humbled? Well, the last second shot is hit in your face and then they celebrate around you and that's what humiliation looks like, yeah? LeBron James from this past six game series, is that right? Not even, didn't even make it to seven? He's my favorite. I was hurt for him. Humiliation in our culture is saying you got put down and it's embarrassing. You never want to be that guy or that girl. And Christ is saying, here's what you need to embrace. Pastor John just read this to me. Not upward mobility, but downward. Here's what Christianity looks like. Not trying to get more, but trying to give more and be less. And you know what's hard? That. You know what's the great struggle of our entire lives? Genuine humility. You know what's the great struggle of my every waking moment is just not thinking about me for a bit? When's the last time you went 10 minutes without thinking about you and you weren't sleeping? Seriously, think about it. You're probably kind of doing it right now. Is he talking to me? I hope he's not talking to me. (laughs) Humility is the greatest struggle, but it is the only posture from which Christians can live into the Christian life because it's a posture of dependence. And that's what Christians say. We don't say, oh, we got a little kickstart, now we do it all on our own. We say, it's all Jesus. He has taken us into himself completely. And now we sit here in utter gratitude and delight because Christ has made much of us when we were nothing. He's saying, don't mistake this. It's not that you were something and then you messed up like one time and then you, then you needed some help. No, no, no. Sinful from birth. That's what David talks about in the Psalms. Utterly broken, capable of no good. And I have seen you in that space and loved you and redeemed you anyways. I take deep delight in you. I love you so, so much. We must figure out what it means to identify these false idols, these false gods. And again, the root that you'll find at the bottom is probably your own pride. Almost every time. C.S. Lewis called that the great vice, which means the great uh, virtue then is humility. Pursue that with your whole life. Pursue humility in the way that Christ has said to pursue it, and you will genuinely begin to grow. I 100% believe that. The more that you can make less of yourselves, because it takes your focus off of you and puts it on God and others. That's the pivot. That's the transition. That's what Christians are made for. And again, this is not a burdensome relationship of divorcing yourself. It's actually the greatest gift. Listen to what C.S. Lewis says. I'll finish this quote. Uh, Let me see if I can find it. So he said, you'll, you will become delightedly humble if you, if, you, if you begin moving this way. If you accept the grace of God and move this way, you'll be delightedly humble, feeling the infinite relief of having for once got rid of all the silly nonsense about your own dignity, which has made you restless and unhappy your whole life. Restless and unhappy your whole life. If I'm being honest, even on my best days, I still feel restless. And I hate it. I hate it. I feel like such a brat, honestly. I've got, the Lord has blessed me in so many ways. Incredible. My wife is, I wish you could meet her. I wish she was here today. She is like a thousand times better than me. And then my son, beautiful, awesome, perfect. All he does is poop right now. That's all right. It's it's part of it, right? He's he's growing. 
I've been blessed in so many ways, and yet I still feel restless. So I'm trusting in these other things. So maybe this has felt a little abstract, uh, but here's a couple ways that you can practically pursue this humility. Follow your mind. Where does your mind go when you're just not doing anything? Where do your, where do your stray thoughts go? There might be an idol under there. Uh, follow your money. What's, what is effortless to spend money on? It's like the easiest thing in the world. You don't even second guess it. You just do it. Could be an idol under there. Follow your blocked, or, blocked goals or unanswered prayers. What are the things that make you most frustrated and angry with God about that he hasn't said a yes and an amen to something in your life? Could be, could be an idol under there. Follow your wayward emotions, particularly anger. When do you get the most angry in relation to some of these things? Um, you shall have no other gods. There it is. Last piece, we'll end here. You shall have no other gods before me. This relationship with God is not cold and contractual. It's meant to be full of life and love. That's what it's actually supposed to be. If you have not experienced Christianity in that way just yet, then maybe you're still using the law as a measuring stick to figure out if you measure up. Maybe you're still consumed with self-love and maybe you haven't understood that Christ is begging you to draw near. The word uh, before me, the way that that's phrased, it's also used in the Old Testament to talk about marriage. She'll take no, uh, no husband before this spouse or vice versa. And that's a, that's a picture in the Old Testament and new that's used over and over and over and over again of God and his people. Marriage. And if we think about that, if we just use that metaphor just for a second, think about, uh, think about the way that people come into marriage. Is it cold and contractual? Is it, is it meant to be just a, a, basically just something that we kind of frame up and say, here's the, here's the agreement, that's all? No. Marriage is, is meant to be something so much more full than that. Listen to, these, listen to these vows that people take. Will you take so-and-so to be your wedded wife? to live together after God's holy ordinance in the holy relationship of marriage? Will you love her, comfort her, honor and keep her in sickness and in health, and forsaking all others, keep yourself unto her so long as you both shall live? Strong commitment, but full of lovely language. Any of y'all don't want to be loved and comforted in sickness and in health so long as you shall live? I want that, <laughs> big time. I'm not too man to say that. I am not a man at all, if that's what it means to be a man. I want to be loved. I want to be cared for. Or how about these? To have and to hold from this day forward, for better or worse, sickness and in health, for richer, for poorer, to love and to cherish, till death do us part. You see, in every marriage, there is two parts. There is the contractual part, right? You sign a, a marriage license, which benefits you in forms of taxes and whatever else. There's legal implications, right? And those are good. Do we, do we like those? Of course we do. It's great. But there are deeply personal implications to committing to a marriage, to love and to cherish, to forsake all others. And if God frames up his covenant with his people in Exodus and says, this is what it looks like, that you're mine exclusively now, in the, in the same way that a husband will want to exclusively take a wife to himself, do you, do you feel that? He wants you to feel that. 
He doesn't want to draw up another contract for you to sign on the dotted line. He wants to say, you're mine now. Listen to how Martin Luther says it. Jesus, that joyfully generous and perfect husband, takes as his wife a needy, dirty, broken harlot, the church, the, the, the sinful brokenness that we all are. He takes that and he redeems her from all her evils and gives to her all good things. In Christ, it is impossible. This should just fill your heart. In Christ, it is impossible for your sin to destroy you. It's impossible. It can't get you. Since they have been taken by Christ and swallowed up by him, he has removed every ounce of her guilt completely and instead filled her cup with righteousness of which she can claim as her own. Therefore, she has the confidence against all her sins, enough to say, if I have sinned, my Christ in whom I believe has not. All mine is his and all his is mine. If you come to Christ thinking you've got something to offer that you've measured up, then that's not that great of an agreement. But if you come to Christ identifying as a bride who's broken, in debt, needy beyond need, then that is the best news ever. All his is mine. All his righteousness, all his joy, his inheritance, his glory, it's, it's ours now together. And all mine, all the stuff, all the guilt, all the shame, all the baggage, all the stories, all of it. Christ swallows up, as Martin Luther says. He drinks it down like a cup of wrath and says, there, I could pour this cup out on your head. There is no more. Nothing can come out of this onto your head. It's impossible for your sins to draw near to you because I have drawn near to you. Allow that to fill your cup because the more you find Christ beautiful, the more you find Christ trustworthy and cherishable and wonderful. The more you identify with a story that says you went from here, this bondage, to here, this freedom, the more your life will begin to function in a way that's honoring and pleasing. The more you will want to spend time with him, the more you will legitimately look at spiritual disciplines. We keep using these bad words for ways to engage Jesus. Law, discipline, all this. It's like, no, 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 this is time with him. Then you discipline your, who's married in here? How many, how many married folk we got? Yeah, did you discipline yourself to get to know your spouse? Yeah, you distanced yourself from some other stuff. <laughs> other friends? I was like, sorry, I, have, I don't know, any time for you. Well, that's not going to work. Why? Because you disciplined yourself to say, let's know each other deeply. I want to be with you. I want to engage with you in relationship. And what happened? You entered into the legal side of this agreement in terms of marriage and the personal side to love and to cherish all the days of my life. It's a beautiful thing, but we treat Jesus as something that's separate than that. We treat him as something that's like, oh yeah, there's benefits that you could offer me, but that's really all I need from you. And Jesus says, I am what I offer. I, I'm it. And if you don't want me, you don't want it. You don't get the benefits. You don't aim for heaven and hope that, you know, all that kind of stuff happens. You aim at me because I have engrafted you into myself. These pictures of scripture are so helpful for this. They're so, so helpful. Marriage, the song we sang earlier, I was moved to tears already thinking about a child dancing with their father, walking with their father. Why? Because the prodigal son story flows into my brain. A son who has broken every rule you can imagine, and the father literally runs to his aid and hugs him with open arms, says, I love you. I love you. I will take care of you. I will cherish you. I love you. Just like a deer that pants for streams of living water, so my soul pants for the Lord, longs for the Lord. Friends, you have souls that are panting for the living God. You may think they're panting for success and love 
and well-being and comfort. Let me assure you they're not. Many people have come before you. You can read any scripture story you can find. Anyone that's the most successful at any of those things ends up broken in the despair. Because Jesus, St. Augustine said this, Christ, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless till they rest in you. He has made us for himself. Our hearts are restless till they rest in him. Let's pray. We hope you were blessed by the message today and would love to hear about how God is using this ministry in your life. You can connect with us online at outpouringorlando.com to share your story, request prayer, give financial support, or learn more about our ministry. We'd love to see you at one of our Sunday services if you're ever in the Orlando area. Thanks again for joining us today. Have a wonderful week.